agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and a prolific and always interesting blogger for EconLog. He's the author of multiple books, including three that he and I have previously discussed on the show, The Myth of the Rational Voter, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders. Today, he's back for a fourth record-setting time. Yes, he is the most interviewed politics guy's guest now. I should point out that prior to that, he was tied with his George Mason colleague, Tyler Cowen, but now, Brian, you have the title all to yourself, and uh, today we'll be talking about Brian's latest book, Labor Econ Versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Brian Kaplan, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm going to be sure to tell Tyler at lunch that I'm beating him and see whether he'll <laughs> like me for this. That would, that would be good. All right, so yeah, I, I want to I, I start with the opening essay of your book, because in the opening essay, you write, labor economics stands against the world. Uh, so I, first off, can you maybe explain to listeners what exactly you mean by labor economics and then the sense in which you see it as standing against the world? Labor economics is just application of normal economic reasoning to the world of work, to the job market. And then actually, by extension, labor economists often think about things that are related to the way that individuals choose to spend their lives and their time. So labor economists are also the people that have done economics of marriage, economics of childbearing, which then obviously connect right back to what kind of jobs you're likely to have. In terms of how it stands against the world, the interesting thing is that when you apply regular economics to labor, most of what you learn is just obvious stuff. Like if there's a high supply of labor, then you expect that wages will be lower. If there's a low supply of labor, expect wages to be higher. If some labor is highly productive, expect that demand will be higher and wages will be higher. If some labor is unproductive or less productive, expect that demand will be lower and wages will be lower. And yet these answers are so unpleasant for so many people because it means that a lot of what people hear about the world of work in politics and history is just deeply mistaken or just half-truths. For me, most obviously, let me put it this way. Uh, whenever I see an American history textbook, I immediately turn to the index and find the Industrial Revolution. And then I read the part about the Industrial Revolution in the history textbook. And normally, the section uh, in, uh, on the Industrial Revolution in an American economics, or rather an American, American history textbook, just begins talking about how terrible life was in 19th century factories, how horrible the treatment was, and there's no mention of, you know, or barely mention of rising productivity, rising living standards, nor of the question, well, if things are so terrible in factories, why did anyone choose to go to factories? The obvious answer, and I think the answer is right, is that bad as things were, it was a big improvement compared to being on a farm. Yeah, and so, I mean, at least to me, you have this reputation as being something of a contrarian, but but really, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that this isn't 
Brian Kaplan against the world, you're sort of following the logic of labor economics, and it just leads to some of these conclusions that uh, because of uh, some of the, well, this kind of gets to another question I have. You talk about uh, the central tenets of our secular religion, right? And and how, I guess, sometimes your these labor economics views go against those things. So before we get into some of those tenets, can, can you kind of talk about what you mean by our secular religion, because I think it really ties into what you had just said there. Yes. The way I think about our secular religion is this. It's the stuff that both Democrats and Republicans all agree on, or at least almost all uh-huh. agree on. And you may say, like, is there such stuff? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like any group of people where they disagree, where they focus on the disagreements. It doesn't mean that they don't have wide areas of agreement that they just take for granted and so don't discuss very much. You know, things like it's very important to have government regulation protect workers or else they would be doing terribly, maybe doing as badly as they were doing in the 19th century. This is a view that we think of Democrats as holding, but honestly, I'll say if you go and start talking to most Republicans about reducing labor regulation, they will just say the same things the Democrats will say. I remember when I was in college, my roommate was a very strong Republican. He was Air Force ROTC. And yet when I mentioned the economic critique of the minimum wage, he just said, oh, so workers should be paid five cents an hour. No, I didn't say that. What I said, rather, what I say is that if the only if the market demand for your labor really is it really is ten cents ten cents an hour, then passing a law saying that you have to be paid fifty times that is going to unemploy you. And yet, of course, the main point is that is not in any way a reasonable prediction of what the unregulated wage would be. It's crazy. This is one where you can say, look. Even before COVID, the vast majority of workers were paid well above the minimum wage. And it's not like we have one minimum wage for lawyers, another minimum wage for doctors, another minimum wage for teachers. Rather, there's one minimum wage and people somehow have the idea that this minimum for a small share of the very lowest skilled workers, especially in the poorest parts of the country, somehow is helping out everybody. And it's like, like, how could that be? You think lawyers are making higher wages because the minimum wage? That's a very strange view, honestly. Yeah, and that's one of those one of those uh, specific tenets you mentioned. And so let's let's actually get get into that uh, a little bit because I wanted to ask you uh, maybe push you I know a little bit on that because of course it it seems to me at least based on my non economist reading of the overall effect of minimum wage laws where it, it sounds like what you're saying is it's not so much that Republicans and Democrats disagree it's the disagreements are maybe more at the margins and there aren't a whole lot of people who are just saying let's just do away with this entirely, the five cents an hour type of thing. But based on what I've seen from the research, it seems like there's this sort of basic trade-off and that if there is a, a higher minimum wage, if we go with the, you know, the fight for 15, what have you, that people with lower wage jobs tend to benefit, but that ends up costing some jobs overall. And, and I looked around a little bit then getting ready for our discussion, the CBO put together this really kind of neat, neat to policy geeky myself, interactive minimum wage modeling tool online. And according to their projections here, the end result of a $15 an hour minimum wage would almost certainly be uh, a significant reduction of the number of people in poverty. I mean, they 
concluded somewhere between half a million and a million by 2031. And I don't know, to a lot of folks, certainly that's, well, that sounds like a good outcome. Why don't we do something then that would reduce poverty by that much? And I, I, I imagine you don't see it as that simple. And so I wanted to get your take on that. Right. Yeah. So I actually went to that app and played around with it. Honestly, I would put zero stock in that app. It was totally <laughs> non-transparent. I mean, my, like, looking at it, I actually just tried putting things up to the maximum minimum, and it seemed like it was set up so that so I, I could be wrong, but it, it looked like it looked to me like it was set up so that just the higher the better. Uh, so you yeah. know, like the, you know, the main things to understand there. So you're you're right. So there's a, there's a lot of research on the minimum wage, and the results are more mixed than I would have expected. Uh, but it's important to remember that. When people, the things, things that people are measuring are often not really the things that are important. It's more of the things that are easy to measure. The most obvious one is when you're trying to figure out how much unemployment do you cause by raising the minimum wage, almost all the research focuses on short-term employment losses. Why would they focus on short-term employment losses? Because they're the easiest things to measure. And yet, the thing that you should really be worried about for purposes of public policy is, well, what about the long run? What is going to happen if you have a $15 minimum wage in the longer run when people start thinking about ways that they could go and replace workers with either more technology or possibly with just having more customer self-service? And this is where I say that you want to go and broaden the search net to other kinds of evidence. So one really big one I would say is let's just go and look around the world and look at countries where wages are much lower and see what they use human beings for there versus machines or uh, or, or customer self-service. So you see is when you go to countries where wages are lower, they just use human beings for stuff we would never use human beings for here. You'll go and have a person who just brings tea around to every person in an office, for example, in India. Why? Well, that guy might only cost $2 a day. So it's a sensible way to get sensible there to go and hire someone for that. But then you realize that oh, you know, over the longer run, uh, when, wage, when wages are high, people say, you know, they, they say, well, well, there's a lot of things we can do without. We could go and mechanize this. We could go and have the customers do it themselves. So, and basically, the, what, most of the research, they focus on this easy to measure thing of short run uh, job loss rather than focusing on what really counts because it's harder. Although, honestly, I also say I think the most researchers focus on it because you know, most economists, uh, despite what you may have heard, are actually moderately left wing and they have a lingering level of sympathy for the minimum wage. And as a result, when they are doing this research, I think they are trying to go and cut the salami in such a way that they can find something good to say about it. Uh, my colleague, Dan Klein, he actually did a fantastic survey. There was a public letter that some economists circulated in favor of raising minimum wage, and a bunch of economists signed it. What my colleague, Dan Klein, then did is he emailed every signatory of it and said, so you're an economist. Why do you favor raising the minimum wage? And he got a lot of answers <laughs> out and a lot of responses. Right. So one answer is basically the one that's behind the CBO app of I just think that the level of response is fairly low. Then you also got a lot of economists saying things like, well, like if that's the best that the market can give you, just ought to be on welfare, right? Or sometimes, look, it's just a symbol and yeah, sir, there's some human costs, but it's a symbol that's important to pay. Uh, elsewhere in the book, I actually talk about something that economists very rarely consider, but I think it's important, um, namely that when people who study human happiness, mostly psychologists, but also some economists look at the effect of unemployment, they find that unemployment is very harmful for human happiness above and beyond the loss of income. So if you were to fully replace the income of someone after you disemploy them, uh, an economist, most economists would naively say, yeah, well, either they'll be just as happy or they'll be happier because they don't have to have a job anymore. They don't want to work. 
And yet what psychologists find is actually that causes great human misery because unemployed people just feel like their lives have no meaning, no structure. They don't have a place in society anymore. And so I actually have this piece called The Joy of Market Clearing Wages when I say many, many people think of more regulated European labor markets as being better for human happiness. And I say, no, actually, they're probably worse. Uh, in the U.S., we've, uh, we, uh, like, as well as in the better European countries uh, on labor regulation like the U.K., Germany, Netherlands, Denmark, in those countries, uh, you know, they do allow more low-skilled and low-benefit work. But at the same time, they also this also means their unemployment rates are lower and you just see less of this sense of despair and meaninglessness of being unable to find a place in the world of work and, and, and also just the inability of an adult to be a self-supporting person, which I say is, is really worth a lot in terms of you know, how it should count when you think about the policy. Yeah, I think that's just such an important point. Uh, you mentioned it a couple of times in that it. We tend to measure most what we can measure most easily and something like, for instance, that connection between employment and human happiness. That's a lot trickier to measure, certainly, but we 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 have enough evidence to know that there's a real connection there. And and that's the sort of thing I think that you're, you're absolutely right, doesn't go into those calculations as as often as it would, because it is so tricky to, to, to figure out. Uh, so, and it's also very worth remembering the minimum wage is something old people very rarely earn it for long. Instead, right. it is a way to go and get some useful job training. It's very tempting to say you don't get useful job training at McDonald's, but that's insane. If you just think about a person who's never had a job and they go and work at McDonald's, they learn all kinds of useful things just showing up and working with a team. So mm-hmm. to, you know, to denigrate that or say that's not important really just shows a great naivety. And, and you, I mean, you you talk in a number of places in the book about the the, the pretty dire negative effects of unemployment, and and so I mean, we talked about minimum wage laws, but of course those are not the only laws that are at least ostensibly protecting or helping workers. And that first tenet you have is used. I, I love the way you put it. Is the main reason today's workers have a decent standard of living is that government passed a bunch of laws protecting them, right? And minimum wage was the first thing that jump to my mind to a lot of other folks, but there are other laws as well. I could hear people say, well, what about child labor laws? What about maximum hour laws and that sort of thing? So, I mean, are, are there any of these regulations, these laws that you would say, yeah, this is probably a good thing that we have this, or, or do you think that the market can largely regulate all of these things? There are no laws of that kind that I think are a good idea. I'm happy to go and talk about which ones do more or less harm. Right now, honestly, I think the U.S. minimum wage is doing almost no harm because uh, due to a perfect storm of low labor supply and crazy demand policy, market wages are almost everywhere now well above not only the legal minimum wage we have, but above almost any minimum wage anyone's talked about. So so the minimum wage right now, I think, is actually not doing, doing very little harm to the U.S. economy. Because almost everyone is like due to market forces is getting way beyond that. Right. Uh, in terms of other ones, so the ones that really matter a lot these days are employer mandates, where you just say that you have, if you're going to hire someone for a certain number of hours, you also have to go and give them health insurance. That's you know, other benefits as well. Uh, this is one where again, it's just well, look, you know, there's these mean employers; they're not giving employees health insurance. Let's pass a law saying they have to do it. Yet, if you think about the likely effects, well, one is. If I have to keep paying someone the same wage, plus I have to go and give them $10,000 worth of health insurance per year, maybe I don't want to hire them at all. 
Another possibility is you'll say, fine, I will hire them, but I'm going to cut the money wage in order to make up for these extra costs. Uh, what's very striking when these laws are written is whenever you have a health insurance mandate, it almost always doesn't kick in until you work a certain number of hours. So there's almost always a part-time exception. When you think about that, it's like, hmm, why is there a part-time exception? I say even the people that believe in these laws are thinking you have to get health insurance to work or to work five hours a week, then those jobs will simply disappear. It's almost undeniable. And then it's like, well, if you think that this mandate will have a very large disemployment effect for part-time jobs, why do you think that it's just irrelevant or not worth discussing for a 30-hour-a-week job or for a 40-hour-a-week job? Doesn't all depend heavily upon the skill of the worker and how much the employer would be willing to pay in total? So again, aren't you really effectively just either disemploying people or saying, look, if you want to have a job at all, most of your income is going to go to health insurance, which again is probably what would happen if someone did manage to get a job for five hours a week and there was a health insurance mandate, would be like, okay, well, we basically pay you no cash, you just get health insurance. So, so do you think more generally then that most, if not, not quite all, but I'll say most, cause I hate that deal in, 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 uh, yeah, in yeah. you know, absolutes, but, but most of these laws represent a certain unjustifiable lack of faith in markets to work these things out in, in the longer run. Would that be a, would that be a fair statement of your kind of position on a lot of these regulations? The word faith, I don't like. Okay. I mean, I think, uh, but, but again, I think the better way of thinking about it is that it's a failure just to accept trade-offs. So like, I do not have faith, for example, that a severely handicapped person is going to get a job uh, at a middle-class wage in America. I don't think that is a reasonable view. And that, I, I think if you say, I just have faith in markets to believe that, I'd say, well, you're, you're a fool to think that. If a person's productivity is extremely low, if the only way they can do their job is to have another person hired to go and help them do their job, then yeah, there's probably going to be very low demand for that person's work. Uh, rather, what I would say is that you need to think about what the trade-offs are. So if you pass that law saying that you that you have to pay the same wage to the severely handicapped as to uh, as to other workers, then probably what's going to happen is you're just going to wind up disemploying the handicapped, which indeed does seem to have been the main effect of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is one where it is almost everyone who's worked on it in economics has said, "Gee, we passed these laws trying to protect the, the protect the handicapped, and it turns out now it's almost impossible for a handicapped person to get a job." Why? Because employers say these rules are so strict, I'm going to lose money if I hire you. So that's the way that I would think about it. It's more of failing to ask compared to what. So you know, like, it's not true that every single person in the U.S. gets to have a great, high-paid, fulfilling job. Uh, the, the most optimistic take that I would have is a large majority of people, if you just let the market work, will eventually be doing well. But that might take twenty years. And say, but yeah, but like, still, like, compared to what? What is the alternative? Is the alternative to pass a law saying that everyone has to get a great job right away? In which case. There's going to be a lot of people who never get the opportunity and then they don't get the chance to learn and improve and, and then be able to get a job where they are justified in getting that kind of higher pay and better conditions. So, I mean, it, it sounds it sounds well, it seems to me that at least the, the, I would call it the libertarian critique of regulation in general is that it's very difficult for 
regulators, policymakers, even if they have the best of intentions to be able to see all of these trade-offs ahead of time. And so they do things like the American Disabilities Act or various other minimum wage laws that seem to make sense in the short term. But because markets are so complex, and we're dealing with so many moving parts that there are invariably unintended consequences. And oftentimes in the long run, especially, they can outweigh what were the uh, hoped for short-term benefits. There's a lot to that. So I'll say before I studied economics, not only did I not believe that labor regulations would cause unemployment, I don't think I had ever in my entire life heard anyone suggest that such was possible. Mm. Okay. And I did not grow up in a radical left enclave of Berkeley. I was in Reagan country of Los Angeles in the 1980s. But I'm pretty sure I knew before I studied economics, I don't think I ever heard a single person on earth say the minimum wage might reduce employment. I don't think I ever heard a single person on earth say, when you mandate health insurance coverage, this either is going to cause unemployment or it will just come out of the worker's uh, paycheck. So what's so great about that? This is all stuff that was not obvious to me uh, until I studied economics. Now, I will say as soon as I heard it, I'm like, hmm, yeah, I kind of feel deceived by my teachers and parents and adults in the world that they never at least pointed this, this out as a possibility. You know, as soon as I heard these arguments, they made so much sense to me. Then there's the puzzle, like how can an adult go through their life without knowing this stuff, especially someone who is closely involved in activism on these matters? That's where I do have a less charitable view. So actually, the next book in the series is going to be called How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. (laughs) My honest view, yes, my honest view is I think that people who are politicians working labor regulation and activists who are pushing it, I think that they actually secretly agree with me. I know this sounds like a paranoid theory, (laughs) but but there's just a lot of suspicious details when you look at the laws that to me suggest that the people that are actually advancing the laws are worried that I at least worried that I'm right. You know, like one example, like I said, is whenever there's a health insurance mandate, it almost always comes combined with it kicks in when you're working a certain minimum number of hours. Mm-hmm. That strongly suggests that they realize that there's there was a high disemployment effect for for very low, low for very low hour workers. And then where did how where do they get this idea that then it becomes zero at 30 hours? They can't really believe that. Well, you know, another I- example. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I think in part, doesn't it, I would suggest coming at it from a political science viewpoint that the incentives of politicians are oftentimes a lot different. What makes for good politics, good electoral politics doesn't necessarily make for good policy. And it sounds like that's that's sort of what you're you're getting at just from a different direction. Oh, I would say that the effect of mandating health insurance is much less bad in, our, in the real world, precisely because they carve out these exceptions. Yeah. Rather, what I'll say is the exceptions show that, at least in the back of their minds, they understand the economic critique, and they are adjusting the law so that it doesn't have the horrible, obvious, devastating effects in the cases where they're making the exceptions. But then the question is, well, if you agree with me without really admitting it that there would be there are all these devastating effects sometimes, why don't you think there's at least moderately bad effects in the normal case? Uh, the other one that really strikes me is whenever you raise the minimum wage, it basically never kicks in immediately. 
Instead, there is a timetable where it says, well, the minimum wage is going to be raised to $15, but it'll be $10 starting on January 1st, 2023, then go to $12 on uh, on June, 30, June 30th, 30th on 2024, and then finally you'll at $15 uh, in, say, March of 2026. Right. So this is very standard when you read the fine print for raising the minimum wage. And again, it's like, well, if you think it's such a good idea, why not today? Why, why the wait? And this is one where, again, it looks to me like the people wrote it are thinking, well, yeah, if you did it all that much all at once, then it would lead to unemployment. But somehow, if we just make it take longer, then it won't. This is odd because very basic economics says that adjustments take time. As a result, you think that you get a larger effect if you give people more time to respond. They could actually say, hey, I see this minimum wage increase coming. Let's not fill these slots as people quit, for example. Therefore, what are they really thinking? I think what they're really thinking is that if they went and did that very large increase with no warning, this would lead to an obvious large on a disemployment effect, and then they would look bad. So I think they are deliberately tailoring the law to fuzz things up so that no, you, well, we won't have a smoking gun. They are actually making the law take longer to have its alleged, its alleged benefits because I think they really are in their heart of hearts actually in agreement with me. Uh, I, yeah, I realize it's a paranoid theory, <laughs> <laughs> but again, the, these little signs are things like, look, they see they're too, like they're too clever by half, as the English say. Like they just seem to realize something that their official demagogic statements would indicate that they have never would have just refused to consider or would just get angry about. And yet the laws that they write themselves show an appreciation for the critique. Well, it, it makes me think back to one of your earlier books, The Myth of the Rational Voter. And it sounds like the argument is that, well, politicians are, are, are themselves rational, but they're understanding that they're, the electorate is not. And so instead of sort of trying to educate the electorate about these things, the path of least resistance is to sort of play along with that and do these things that might not be rational, but try to sort of make them less bad for some of the mechanisms you talk about and that sort of have the best of both worlds or maybe the worst of both worlds. I don't know. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. The main question in my mind is, to what extent are they just trying to appease the public and do something that is less bad than the public wants? And to what extent are, are they realizing, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to amass power, but I don't want to look stupid. Yeah. Yeah. So how can, yeah. I, how can I go and demagogue as much as I can without there being a smoking gun on the harm? Um, and obviously, I think it varies from politician to politician. I remember during the 80s, once I, once I learned about the economics of the minimum wage, I immediately got very angry at Ronald Reagan because he hadn't made any effort to abolish the minimum wage. It took me some time to understand that merely by failing to raise the minimum wage in a period of high inflation, Reagan had half abolished the minimum wage anyway. And, and you you mentioned uh, wages rising. So we've, we've you know in terms of the pandemic in the last few years, of course, we've seen employers being forced to compete for a smaller uh, uh, and, and in many ways, I guess you could say a pickier pool of potential employees. We've seen you know pretty significant wage growth. Of course, not as not as high as inflation growth. I wanted to talk to you specifically uh, about some of that panda pandemic uh, those pandemic yeah. issues. Uh, so I mean, do you think that the 
well, the trillions that the government has poured into pandemic support, ha- has that been the sort of thing that overall you think would, it has been problematic as it sort of maybe created this, in part, artificial labor shortage and uh, led to a lot of the inflationary pressures where even if I'm getting, you know, four or five percent more, it's not competing with the, you know, seven percent inflation? Yes. This is a case where we have to move up to level of macroeconomics. It's not just labor economics. So the labor is central to the story. So what the government did is, you know, obviously, there's you know, massive fiscal stimulus, so massive deficit spending. And it's important to understand that the way that this ultimately works is that it, 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 if the Federal Reserve did not cooperate with the with the rest of the government, we would just be seeing an enormous increase in interest rates because when the government is borrowing trillions of dollars, the Federal Reserve did not accommodate that by printing more money, then interest rates would skyrocket. So really what we have is a situation where when the government borrows more, in order for the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates where they were, they have to print a lot more money. So there's really actually a giant monetary stimulus going on behind the scenes. Very important to understand that. Uh, but in any case, so the, like there's the you know, enormous increase in demand from the government, but also a substantial reduction in supply because a lot of the use of government money has been to give people money not to work. Now, most of that has expired by now, but it's important to understand that this actual level of fiscal stimulus was so unprecedentedly generous. There's a lot of people that now actually were, were able to pay off uh, pay off their debts. And so they just have a very easy choice of saying, well, I don't really have to go back to work right now. Probably actually the pandemic adds to it. There's a, I bet there's also a lot of adults who move back in with their parents and their parents normally would be impatient. They say, hey, why haven't you found a job? At this point, they're like, well, I'm too worried about COVID. So at least the excuses of grown, grown, adult, of grown children moving back with their parents are more effective now. Anyway, we can see that labor force participation is still not recovered. Uh, we're still actually down a substantial amount compared to before the pandemic. Which again, I think a lot of that is at least the hangover of all of the relief measures, which really did make it just a lot easier for many people to say, hey, I'm just going to be very picky. I'm not going to work. And if someone just banked all that extra money they were earning, then they really could just be staying on holiday for quite a while. So the idea that like the effects should disappear the second that the checks start flowing is really quite simpl- simplistic. Right. Yeah, I have. One one assumption I think that that you make that a lot of people make about labor markets in general has to do with the fact that, well, we assume that they're competitive, that there's competition between employers for employees. And uh, not, not too long ago, actually, on the podcast, I talked with Eric Posner, who basically argues that labor markets, in his view, are oftentimes fairly uncompetitive and that we would do well to rethink our antitrust law and actually start applying it to uh, what are called monopsonies. For listeners, that's where a small number of employers, buyers of labor have more weight than they should in in a labor market. I wanted to get I wanted to get your take on what you think of as the competitiveness or lack thereof of labor markets. Is this an issue? And and if so, how big of an issue do you see it as? A fantastic question. There are a, a certain number of occupations where I think that the idea of monopsony makes some sense. For example, if you are a nuclear engineer, there very likely is only one nuclear plant in your area. You really would have to move to a totally new part of the country in order to get another job. So for cases like that, you really can say, hmm, 
seems like, yeah, there's really only one employer. Now, when you go and look at the wages of nuclear engineers, you say, huh, they seem to be making tons of money. So what's going on? And that is itself a good question. You might say, well, maybe they're making even more if we had a larger number of nuclear plants. Anyway, so that's just something to get started with. Now, when we step back and say, all right, so if there's some occupations where monopsony is plausible, which occupations is it not plausible? And that's where I'll say basically any unskilled labor. The whole idea of unskilled labor is that you could do a ton of different things. And yet, of course, almost all regulation focuses on trying to help out unskilled workers. So I would say that invoking monopsony to justify any of the regulations that we have is crazy. And it's just a, a rather sad rationalization, of, which has nothing to do with what's going on. The real story is almost all labor market regulations are focused on helping poor and low-skilled workers. I think that they do a very bad job of it. But nevertheless, those are the workers where the laws are almost always focused on. So this monopsony complaint has nothing to do with justifying what we have. If you were to go and start thinking about it more and saying, well, maybe we should rethink everything and just build a whole new system of labor regulation to protect exploited nuclear engineers and so forth, that's where I'll say, look, I'll, labor markets for nuclear engineers, they are not perfectly competitive, clearly. Perfect competition being a very specific economic model where as soon as employers pay one penny less than what they're currently paying, every every single employee quits. That is the meaning of perfect competition, right. is that if you paid one penny less, you would lose 100% of your workers. That is clearly not true for nuclear power plants or, or, or wide range of jobs. Uh, but then the question is, how far from that are we? Uh, I would say that most industries, the real story is, look, if you were to go and pay 10% less in the market over the course of 10 years, you would lose almost all your good workers. That's, you know, I think that's a much more reasonable view. Uh, uh, you know, even the idea that there really is literally just one employer, that one's quite silly. You know, like economists who work on this will say, well, by, you know, by monopsony, I really just mean anything short of perfect competition. Sure. And that's why, all right, well, fine. If that's what you mean, then you're right. But nevertheless, uh, let's, you know, let's not overreact here. This also applies to almost all other markets that we know of as well. It's not like if McDonald's raised the price of hamburgers by a penny, that zero people would buy McDonald's hamburgers either. Um, but then, uh, this is where I would say we need to do a deeper dive into the branch of economics called industrial organization. And this is where we realize, well, look, yes, there are some drawbacks of having a small number of large firms, namely that you, ha you have less intense competition. You don't have this competition of incredible blinding power. But at the same time, there is a reason why we see a lot of industries with a small number of large firms, namely there are economies of scale. You can actually produce at lower costs and with higher productivity by doing this. Uh, the upshot of this is if we were to go and try, say, trust busting on nuclear plants, then the likely result would actually just be that we destroy the industry because the economies of scale are so, are so large, especially given current regulations, that they just wouldn't be able to operate at a profit if you started trying to split them into a large number of small firms. Um, so again, what, you know, like the, when you think, start thinking about this more, it's like, so you're saying that actually it could really be better for workers to have a small number of large firms if this raises their productivity so much that they are willing to go and offer higher wages. Right. And that's what I would say is what's really going on. So it's not so much that Eric Posner is wrong, but that he is missing the deeper question of why do we ever have industries with a small number of large firms? I say the top reason is obviously because of economies of scale, because there are some kinds of industries where that causes much higher productivity. And in such industries, you should be very frightened as a worker of trust busting because it means, well, we'll have 10 firms with really low productivity bidding for your services. Huh, I'd rather have one strong firm where I had high productivity bidding for my services. I think that's going to give me a much better deal.
Do you think it's a slightly different case when you say have instances of, uh, you know, there's the, the famous instance a few years ago of Jimmy John's and making uh, sandwich makers sign a non-compete agreements where they couldn't work in another fast food restaurant or these informal agreements between institutions saying, well, we won't hire these people away from you, that sort of that sort of anti-competitive behavior. Is that maybe more of a, a, a legitimate concern or, or, or not so much? do you think? Right. So I believe there's another one of the books in the series of my best essays that's going to talk about non-compete agreements. Okay. There is a very obvious economic rationale for non-compete agreements, namely that it improves the incentive to give job training. If you are going to invest an enormous amount in training an employee, and then they can quit at a moment's notice and take the skills somewhere else, this is a reason to say, hmm, maybe we don't want to give job training. Uh, and especially uh, secrets. If, uh, if there's something that is important for your business that, uh, that rests upon trade secrets, as many businesses do, understanding, for example, is Coca-Cola, they've long since lost any patent that they ever had on their formula. Rather, although there's new Coke, so, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so at least the original one, they've yeah. long since lost, you know, like, like but, but nevertheless, what they do is they have a trade secret where the, like, the chemists are like are sworn to secrecy on the formula, or very few people know it. Hard to reverse engineer, at least apparently. I don't know. I'm a little confused about what's going on. But anyway, there are, you know, that is an example of a trade secret. And non compete clauses are a way of making firms comfortable in letting an employee in on important trade secrets. They need to know their, their jobs so they don't have to worry that they'll immediately go and ruin the business by sharing it. Uh, this especially makes sense in startups, that kind of thing, where you have a brand new idea. And if an employee could go and just learn your idea and then quit and then sell it to someone else, that might destroy your business and be very bad for innovation. So honestly, I think that non-compete agreements are really underrated. Even most economists, I think, just uh, like uh, dismiss them quite hastily without realizing they do serve this useful function of encouraging firms to go and train and share secrets with employees. Um, now, uh, for the, you know, the broader question of things like your firms informally agreeing not to go and hire each other's workers. Uh, so that's something where, like, you know, my wife actually was, in, like, if you want to use the word, she was a victim of one of these uh, briefly. Although the agreement broke down very quickly because someone moved, you know, first there was some, there, there was one agreement, but then somebody moved to a new place, and then, and then they said, oh, "Well, the agreement only held as long as I was there." Ha! Huh? Stealing your stealing your worker now. <laughs> so I, this is one where I would just say market forces are very strong and discouraging this kind of thing, not perfectly, but then to go and put regulation in there, uh, it's just you know, adds a, a a a large amount of. the burden of the regulation and just having to worry about it. And also just the concern the regulation is going to go and, and, uh, and overrule things that are actually good ideas as well as things that are bad ideas. So I'm quite hostile to such regulations. But anyway, you know, think about regulation general is, you know, this is a case where the slippery slope argument, if it ever works, works. Because you can see that often you get some tiny little regulation. It's symbolic and that's the big deal. International trade, the first, moving Britain away from free trade is just national origin labeling laws saying, look, you can still sell anything you want. There's no tariffs. There's no quotas. Let's just put a little piece of paper on it saying it's made in Germany. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this is step one of making people paranoid about your country being invaded by foreign products. So you can go and start doing the other stuff. So I guess on the cartel point specifically, uh, would it be fair to say, at least in your view, that we don't really have to worry about that sort of behavior because in the end, these things fall apart because it's just so difficult to 
for for that sort of thing of its own weight to to stay together because the 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 people agreeing to this eventually the incentive to break away from it is so great that it'll happen without there being any sort of government intervention usually so this is again a more general industrial organization point i know it sounds like wishful thinking but if you do look at the economic history what was it like before antitrust laws were there ever attempts to form cartels sure there's a whole bunch of famous ones how well do they do though Normally, if you go and look at cartels before antitrust and then – actually, in the early years of antitrust, it was still a little unclear. There was a big merger wave, which was an attempt to get around antitrust. But anyway, normally, if you go and take a look at what really happens after a few years, you see a few things. One is that they just have trouble agreeing on prices and quantities and the thing splits apart. Another is that they attract new entrants. They say, hey, they got the price up 20% now. I should go and start my own business. Another one is you go and buy somebody out and then – they say, okay, well, now that I'm bought out, I'll just start a new business. So really, I would just say that the market mechanism is a lot more resilient. OPEC is actually a really neat case. This is one where it actually is a bunch of governments. So you might think that they had a greater ability to go and enforce it. And yet I was quite surprised when I talked to energy economists, the standard view among American energy economists that OPEC has almost no effect. Wow. Right? Or perhaps it has short-run effects of raising prices, but in the long run, actually the price is lower than it would have been if they had done nothing. That seems odd. Like Here's the main thing that we see whenever OPEC raises prices. It immediately leads to a large increase in new oil prospecting. So both people, you know, individual prospectors start looking, but also new countries start saying, hey, we got an oil around here. Anyway, like Venezuela, a lot of the reason why they have so much oil is during the original wave of OPEC, they said, hey, maybe if there's some oil, that would be fantastic. And they started looking around and they found, oh, my God, we have maybe more oil here in Venezuela than any other country on Earth. And so as a result of all of this, when OPEC does push prices up in the short run, they also just create new competitors for themselves. I think it's actually quite plausible that if OPEC hadn't pushed prices up in the 70s, we'd now be seeing higher prices of oil than we do today. It's because they spurred so much extra competition. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I, I, I want to. We have so much else I want to ask you about. So I want to move on to uh, race and gender issues. Uh, you've addressed this in, in in your essays. In the book, you write: uh, unless government requires discrimination, market forces make it a marginal issue at most. Large group differences persist because groups differ largely in productivity. Uh, I'll, a lot of people hear that have just will. Uh, partially or wholly flip out. So uh, I'm hoping you can expand on this and kind of explain, you know, your evidence for this view that many, many folks on the left, I think, would say is kind of implausible in the face of what we see as sort of systemic racial and gender discrimination in in the workplace and in other places. So uh, I'm interested in hearing your, your comments, your thoughts on this. I would love to talk about it. I would say that word systemic is actually a word that's been tacked on in a way just to uh, to accept the, the, um, some of the things I'm going to say while still not changing the position. Okay. Uh, but but so you know, let me just explain the general evidence. And again, like in this book, I, 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 I try to be careful in distinguishing my personal view from views that I think are consensus of researchers uh, with the caveat that often researchers – don't talk about what I'm saying. It's just that if you cross-examine them and, or, and said, "Look, is Brian wrong on this?" There's a lot of people who would never would never write those. Who would never write what I'm saying. But if Corner would say, "Well, yeah, he's right," but I don't want, I don't think yeah. we should dwell on that. I think that's a lot of what's going on. It's not a disagreement on the conclusions. It's just I really want to go and say and, and say these things. And most economists would rather change the subject because it's kind of uncomfortable. But anyway, so there's a large body of evidence where they try to understand why are there demographic differences in earnings? 
Why are there differences between men and women? Why are there differences between whites and blacks and so on? Uh, normally, what you'll do is you'll say, all right, let's go and try to statistically estimate wages as a function of both demographics as well as a bunch of other traits and see whether if we adjust for a bunch of other traits, whether the difference persists. For example, when you're going and comparing earnings of men and women, men earn considerably more than women. But then the first thing is, well, let's go and do an adjustment for full versus part-time work because women are more likely to do part-time work. And you do that adjustment, you say, oh, wow, actually a lot of the pay gap between men and women goes away when you do a part-time adjustment. Then if you say, well, there's differences between full-time, right? Some people do you know, jobs of 50 hours a week or more. Other people full-time might be 35 hours. Let's do that adjustment. And then you do that adjustment and say, ah, the gap between men and women who are work full-time is still overstated because men are more likely to have very high-hour jobs. Then you might say, huh, well, what if we go and compare, oh, yeah, we're to statistically adjust for whether or not you're working in STEM versus non-STEM. You'll say, ah, even more of the gap goes away. Right, so this is very standard in any, in any issue where economists know that there are pay gaps. And I would say that you know, the general consensus is you can make almost all the pay gaps that you have heard about shrink to a very tiny share of the raw level with just putting in some very obvious control variables. So this means basically is saying things like, if you look at men and women who have the same level of education, the same college major, the same, and, and, the, and, the, and you just compare the ones that are single and childless, then you'll either see that their wages are equal, or actually these days you often see that single childless women, uh, single childless women with the same ed- education, educational background as men earn a bit more. Right? So that is the gen- you know, that are, those are the empirics that I'm referencing. Now, behind all this is a theoretical argument of, look, if women really paid 70 cents on the dollar for equally qualified work, why do firms hire men at all? Isn't that ridiculous? Why don't you just fire all your men, replace them with equally qualified women, and then cut your wage bill by 30%? This is a common sense argument, but it really is the level of, wow, if it was that easy to, to cut your wage bill by 30%, wouldn't firms already have done it? And it's one where you really have to say, come on, you really think that there's a way to get rich that quick, that easily, that business just ignores. Now, uh, in uh, Labor Econ versus the World, I actually go over one of my very favorite examples of this, uh, which is discrimination against illegal immigrants. Now, here's the interesting thing about hiring illegal immigrants. Uh, What U.S. immigration law does not say is is that illegal immigrants are not protected, but you can hire them if you want to. Rather, what U.S. Uh, immigration law says is that it is, it is illegal to hire them at all. It doesn't say you can discriminate if you want. It says that you must discriminate against them or you will be in big trouble. And yet almost no one thinks that mere discrimination against illegal immigrants would lead to the, them to being unable to find jobs in America. Right? Instead, almost everyone th- you know, you've said, hey, look, people don't like illegal immigrants, so let's just legalize discrimination and then they won't want to come here anymore because it'll be so hard to get a job. Almost no one finds that argument convincing. Instead, almost everyone says, oh, there's going to be a bunch of greedy employers who will just look the other way and hire the illegal immigrant to go and save a little bit of money. And they're just going to focus on what, what can the immigrant do for me rather than whether or not they're an American. And even if the employer actually officially doesn't like illegal immigration, still they're going to say, well, money's money and I'm going to hire them anyway. This is what almost everybody thinks. And I think they're correct to believe this. So basic, basically, I mean, it sounds like even though there may be 
individual instances in which there is this you know, discrimination based on gender or sex. Overall, uh, taking kind of a macro view, markets don't really care in any significant way about your gender or your color. Is that? Yeah, yeah and, la- and less government makes them. So honestly, I think now there's a lot of racial and gender discrimination going on in U.S. hiring because employers are worried about getting sued under discrimination laws. I think we are in an Orwellian situation where people are discriminating to avoid being accused of discrimination. And, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, immigration. You brought that up because I know that's an issue that's kind of near and dear to you. You wrote, you wrote a book about it. Huh? So open borders. And so I wanted to talk, uh, maybe we can move on and talk a little bit uh, about that, right? And uh, I think to a lot of people on the right, the idea of open borders is uh, pretty scary and problematic sort of thing. Uh, but this is where, you know, I, I would take, you would take some issue with many folks on at least the populist right. You would make the case, right, that oh, we, what we, the problem isn't that we have too much immigration. The problem is that we have far, far too little immigration, correct? Absolutely. And in particular, we have some extremely strict immigration laws that try to keep immigrants out. Anyone who thinks that we have open borders already, I've actually debated a number of people saying, under the open borders policies last 30 years, this is where I will turn to the audience saying, look, I could be wrong about everything else I'm saying. I am not wrong when I say we have not had anything remotely close to open borders in the last 30 years. The right way to think about it is not, we have 11 million illegal immigrants. How do they get here if it wasn't for open borders? The right question is, well, how many immigrants would have been here if you could come for the price of a bus ticket? Mm-hmm. That's where, so yes, like, if it would, like it clearly would have been at least 100 million more if they could have just come for the price of a bus ticket. As to why it is that I think that people are unreasonable and in thinking this is a bad thing, say, look, this, you know, this comes back to the basics of labor economics, namely that the main thing that a worker does is produce. The reason why people want to move from one place to another is because uh, their productivity is higher in the place they want to go to than the place they're coming from. When you try to prevent people from moving from places where their productivity is low, from places where the productivity is high, of course you hurt that person that you were you're preventing their mobility. But they're not the only loser. You also impoverish all the potential customers. So this is the heart of my economic case for the border. Say, so look, the reason why people want to move from poor countries to rich countries is because they get a raise when they come here, a large raise. The reason they get a large raise is because their productivity is so much higher here. As a result, we will, we will not just be letting them have a better life. We will be increasing the production of the world. And guess who's going to consume that extra production? All of us are going to be consuming that extra production. Just understand the higher productivity of immigrants. There are some cases where it's really easy, like you can measure agricultural productivity in Mexico versus the U.S. You can see very easily that when you move someone from a rural Mexican farm to a modern U.S. agribusiness, suddenly they're, they're growing 10 times as much food as they did before. Right? Just, like you can just look at the numbers and say, wow, by letting him move, we allow this person to go and contribute much more to the food supply than he did before. Same thing with manufacturing. You're comparing the low, you know, low, low mechanization home production in a third world country to working in a modern factory. You can see that there's a much larger increase in production, much higher production, large increase. Even things like services, you might say, well, shoe shining, that doesn't change in productivity when you move from a poor country to a rich country. There, I will say it does if you understand what is really going on, namely the point of a service is to save time. 
And if you save the time of a, of a person with a high wage, you have, you have enriched the world more than you save the time of a person with a low wage. If you save Bill Gates five minutes, you've done a lot more for the world than when you save me five minutes because Bill Gates does so much more in his time. So you put all this together and the, when, when economists try to, to estimate you know, how much could we increase the production of humanity by letting anyone take a job anywhere, and a typical estimate is something like a doubling of the production of the world. Just by saying we're no longer going to try to trap human talent in places where it's unproductive. Now, I do have this whole book, Open Borders, and people can, re- can listen to that podcast because I'm sure we go over that over the objections in a lot of detail. I'm very mindful of the idea of, look, fine, it's true that one immigrant can go and raise his productivity by moving here. But if we moved a lot, that would kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. It would destroy the system. And that's where I say, well, let's consider that as a possibility. But let's not jump the gun and assume the worst. And there I will say that when we go over the, uh, the actual arguments, I just don't see any sign that it is reasonable to predict any major mm-hmm. horrible thing happening. Again, it would, of course, be a big change. You would see a very large rapid population increase. Well, even that, people just tend to, you know, like I think they tend to underestimate how many immigrants will come, but just overestimate how big of a deal that is. You just, you know, just understand the U.S. population is now 100 times bigger than it was when the country started. We multiply population by 100. That, that means basically 10 times per century. Right? So you know, like if, we, if we did anything in that ballpark, so like, you know, suppose in 100 years we had 3 billion people in America. So like, that's totally doable. It's, we've done it two times before. Why can't we do it one more time? This country is almost empty. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I should I should say I remember when when you first mentioned to me that you were coming out with the with your immigration book. I, I uh, and when you told me it was in the graphic novel, not novel, graphic, I don't know, format, I thought I, I don't know about that, but I it is it was without a doubt the clearest and most entertaining and illuminating uh review of immigration policy and economic thinking on immigration I've ever seen. And so I, even though we're talking about this book, I, I feel I feel the need to plug that book because I was so impressed by that. So and that's going to be in the show notes for, for listeners, uh, links to all, all of the Brian's books that we talked about. But definitely that was that was very eye-opening. There were a lot of eye-opening stats on, on immigration and, and ideas I hadn't considered. So uh, anyway, I'm moving on. I, I want to talk I, 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 am I, am I Michael. Hey, Michael, yeah. I love you too. I love you too, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, This is one where you know, many people said, why did you in a graphic novel format? I said, look, there's all this great research that nobody wants to read because it's boring. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. This definitely was. And on the other hand, you, you, have, you have people making very exciting statements about immigration, but totally disconnected from the research. My question is, how can I get and how can I make this research much more interesting? And I had read a number of nonfiction graphic novels. That's the official term in the biz. I said, you like, you can actually make research much more interesting by combining words and pictures. What I realized is, first of all, we can get more people actually reading the book because it's more entertaining. We can get more of them to keep, to keep reading it for more time because it holds their attention. Furthermore, I, I honestly believe that by comparing, comparing words or combining words and pictures is just a much more efficient way to convey information. A picture really is worth a thousand words if you choose it correctly. So I think I actually got more information conveyed per minute of reader's time. And I also believe that uh, there's better retention. People are less likely to forget 
what they learned if you combine words and pictures. So these are all reasons why I do love the format. Yeah, I, I, want, I just needed to say I started out as a skeptic, unquestionably a skeptic, but I came out of it a believer. So there you go. Uh, but I, I, I want to get to education because I know that's another issue that you have a, a lot of passion for. You've done a lot of work on that issue, especially the return to education where you are very much against the conventional wisdom on, on, the, on the importance, the value of a, especially a college education. And uh, when, when I was getting ready for this interview, I, uh, I read on, I think it was Tyler's blog, that he, he posted an article on your return to education calculations with the great title, No One Cared About Brian's Spreadsheets. And it's a really interesting story. And I was hoping you could maybe explain what you did with your data and why nobody really seemed to pay any attention to it. It was an interesting story, I think. Yes. Economists have put an enormous amount of work into calculating the return of education. This basically means, let's think about going to college, say, as like buying a machine for your farm, and where you would go and estimate what return on investment you got. And let's use the standard method to go and figure out what kind of a rate of return that college pays, and then compare it to other options. You might use the idea of a bond paying, say, 3%, or a stock paying 6%. Where does college fit in on this spectrum? What economists normally who work on this normally wind up saying is, wow, the, the return to education is really high. It's better than stocks, at least. We can go and look at the extra payoff people make and then you know, put in some obvious adjustments, and then we still get this really high number. Um, now, closely related to this is economists are also thinking about, well, the, the case for subsidizing it, where they'll say, well, look, if there's this really high return and the market has kept it that high, it's probably because people are having trouble borrowing against their future earnings. So maybe if government would go and just make it free or subsidize loans, then that would encourage it. So part of what economists are thinking about is, is education good for an individual? But also part of what they're thinking about is, is it a good investment of taxpayer resources, which is in principle a different question, right? Yeah. So anyway, uh, despite the enormous amount of work that's gone into returning to education, when I really started reading everything I could find, what I discovered is that what most economists do is they say, all right, we have the normal benchmark. Then I'm going to write a paper on one tweak. Then I'm going to find out how my one tweak changes the result. Then I'm going to publish the paper, and then I'm going to move on with my life. There's almost no one who has ever said, let's write a paper where we go and sift through the hundred tweaks that people have made pick out the 20 that seem most important, and then combine that all into an answer that is actually, that is actionable. An, action, an answer that is actionable for either a student or a parent or guidance counselor advising a student or for governments that are setting education policy. Really, I think I found maybe two papers that even kind of did something like that. Yet I was writing a book where I wanted to give actual practical advice to both people and policymakers. As a result, I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I am going to do what should have been done by somebody else. I'm going to take all of the, all of the tweaks that have been done, look at the numbers, try to, uh, try to come up with a reasonable estimate of how big the different tweaks are. Then I'm going to take some spreadsheets and I'm just going to put it all in there and try to make it as realistic as possible. I'm not going to go and just say, let's assume there's no taxes because that simplifies the analysis. It's very typical of academic right. economists. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let, let's just go do it without taxes. It yeah. simplifies things. Like, yeah, it simplifies it <laughs> by getting you an answer that isn't relevant in the real world. Right. What's the good of that? Right. Okay, so that, so, so that, and again, this really is the, like a very academic mentality of let's simplify the, the math or the calculations. 
and in order to get an answer, then I get a publication. Yeah, but it's a publication that isn't really actionable anymore. So that's kind of a bad idea. So I tried to not simplify things very much. I really actually went through the tax code and like, when do, when, when is the only one is, and what wage is there a marginal increase? And my spreadsheets actually have that kind of level of detail. Um, but at the same time, I put in a number of, uh, of tweaks that, you know, so almost always the tweaks were there in the literature. And yet, Often they, there were very large ones that were published, and then again, they were forgotten just like the other ones. So, you know, like big tweaks, small tweaks. So, like, for example, an enormous one that where there are about five papers on it, and yet it dramatically changed the standard results. There are papers where they say, hey, let's adjust for completion probability. Normally, when economists look at the payoff for college, they look at people who successfully graduated from college and then say, hey, it paid out really well for them, so college pays. Right. Oh my God. Well, so that would be a fine thing to do if, say, we had 99.9% college completion. <laughs> yeah. no, we close. do not have 99.9% yeah. <laughs> no. college completion. What we have actually is about 35% of full-time students finish a four-year degree in four years. That's what we actually have. The few papers that did look at the effect of completion probability on the return to education find the obvious, which is that it doesn't just slightly reduce it. It dramatically slashes it. So I put that into my results, and that's one reason why I get very different outcome, very different measure, very, very different numbers than almost everyone else working here, is that I went and put in this really important adjustment that other people just sort of ignore. Uh, what's really striking is there's a lot of papers in economics on how to raise completion probability, but it's, they think of it as a separate literature. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. So this is the literature where we figure out how to, how to improve college graduation. Here's the other literature where we say where we assume that 100% of people graduate and then we find out whether it's a good investment. Like, hmm, why don't we have, uh, why don't we combine these two things so we factor that in before we advise someone to try college where we don't totally mislead people. I mean, really this is at the level of looking at successful restaurants and then telling someone who's thinking of starting a restaurant, ah, that's what's going to happen to you. Like, um, maybe if, they, if you're super lucky, but so, probably not. <laughs> so starting a restaurant's a good idea if it's successful, but, you know, not so much if yeah, it's yeah. not. <laughs> is it a good idea successfully to start a successful restaurant? Yeah, go for starting a successful restaurant. But don't start a restaurant because most are not successful. And, and I should point out that the, the, the point that Tyler was making is that, uh, is that it seems like no one is actually questioning what you have in your spreadsheets. They just found it easier to just pretend it doesn't exist, essentially, because the, the larger point here isn't that education is worthless for, for everyone or even for a large number of people, but that if we're thinking about making major public investments like guaranteed student loans or various other programs, we need to consider the overall cost to society and not just the benefits to that small that smaller percentage of people who actually managed to complete their college education in four years or six years, right? Absolutely. So you know, the two messages in my book, one is that, two, you know, like, like selfishly speaking, people right now are getting too much, too much education. Um, you know, like even though government is helping them and everything else, there's just a lot of people whose odds of successfully finishing college are so low, or they have to do a major that is so easy that it's very low paid, where they really would be better off just going and getting a job and acquiring some skills. So my, my results for, uh, for what I call the selfish return, my advice that I give to individuals, the, you know, those results are quite moderate, just basically saying, look, if you were struggling in high school, probably you have a better option than college. Now, the part where my book is radical is where I talk about the best public policy for education. And this is where I say, look, we need to be very mindful of the fact that a lot of the reason why education pays is that 
you are getting certified, you're getting a stamp on your forehead as being better than the competition. A lot of the reason why degree in philosophy still helps you get a job at a bank is not because you learn banking and philosophy, <laughs> but rather banks are saying, well, look, we have a large stack of applications. Let's go and throw out people that didn't manage to go and finish college. And so, and that's a lot of the reason why I say the college pays. Almost everyone who doesn't have a whole life's work saying otherwise agrees with this. There are definitely some economists who get very agitated and say, no, 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 there's no evidence for this. A lot of what my book says, you know, not only is there, is, the, is there not no evidence for it, there's overwhelming evidence that a lot of the reason why education pays is that it just certifies you or as economists say, that it signals that you're under your pre-existing ability rather than actually transforming you from a bad worker into a good worker. Anyway, from the point of view of individual, it doesn't really matter why education pays. From the point of view of taxpayers, it matters enormously. If what we're doing when we send people to college is that we're turning unskilled workers into skilled workers, then we really can say that people are producing the extra income that they earn. On the other hand, if I'm right, and a lot of what's going on is just that people are getting stamps on the forehead. If everybody gets more stamps on the forehead, this doesn't mean everyone can get a good job. It just means that the number of stamps you need on your forehead to get a good job go up. In my book, I say this is the main thing that, in fact, happened over the last 75 years is massive credential inflation. Credential inflation is when you need to have more degrees to get the same job that your dad or grandfather got with fewer degrees because employers just get more and more picky about who's worthy of an interview when there's so many degrees floating around. And so then the the net. The net societal cost, the opportunity cost, and other things of us spending all this time and these resources on on effect of stamp is just that's a huge net loss over time to society. Then as you're saying, yeah, exactly. So just think about all of the communications majors or business majors or psychology majors, the vast majority of whom will never work in psychology. Right, every year we graduate more new psychology majors than the total economy has jobs for all their psychologists, counselors, therapists. Uh-huh. Um, basically, you know, these are just pipe dreams. You know, communications, you know, the, the number of actual jobs in all media <laughs> is a fraction right. of the number of communication majors we graduate every year. Obviously, most people cannot get jobs in these areas. Rather, you're just getting a, an easy major, which does distinguish you from a high school graduate. And yet the value society of just churning out you know, you know, millions of communications majors, it is just serves very little social function or at the same time burns up a lot of resources and time. So yeah, it really would be a great way. Like just to say like, what else can we do with this money? Almost anything else would be an improvement. Well, well, that that it seems to me, you know, in terms of misconceptions, is oftentimes when people think uh, the one way maybe in which people are least inclined to think like economists, perhaps, is not considering opportunity costs. It seems to me. Yeah. And and what yeah, we could be what, what you what you what you could have, what you what you could have done instead. I would my my view that's the second worst problem. The first okay. worst problem is just not thinking about incentives, not thinking about how is an employer going to respond if you say that he has to give free health insurance to everybody. I think that's the, they think that's the most basic one. Or flipping it around, how is it that public employees will act if you give them a job for life, right? Regardless yeah. Of performance, yeah. Well, Which. I'll say, wait, aren't you a tenure call? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I was waiting to come back that's to that. how I know for sure what the effects are. These are terrible effects. It is like, it is like I understand why people want to have a tenure job where they can't be fired regardless of performance. And yet, understand, yet being in such a job and having such a job and seeing the, what the performance of other people have jobs like this, it is a prescription for societal disaster to give everyone the deal that public employees have. 
And really what we should be thinking about is taking away this deal the public employees have in order to go and give them better incentives and make them realize, gee, that the point of this job is not to give you a living. The point of this job is to produce useful goods and services. If you're not, then we're going to get rid of you. Civil service protection is the problem. And and on that kind of well provocative note, it seems to me that's so characteristic of so much of your work. That that's why I think that this collection of essays, just like all your work, very much I highly recommend it to, to listeners because you're you're always interesting and provocative and well worth reading. Even when I disagree with you, uh, <laughs> definitely well disagree, worth. Disagree, Michael. <laughs> you generally, should be enough to ch- you know change your mind on everything. You generally win me. Over some, but there are some things. But anyway, uh, as always, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a great pleasure, Michael. And by the way, so you can get the book on Amazon. It is only twelve dollars for the paperback. I'm very pleased with how the paperback turned out, and the ebook is just nine ninety nine. So this is this is uh, the, these are just straight, straight to Amazon. This is not a, an academic book where you are being charged an arm and a leg. It's something where. Yeah, boy. I'll show you to buy 10 copies, hand them out to your friends. The price is right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks a lot, Michael. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.